Welcome back to the program. We seem to worry endlessly about our banks being too big to fail. Well, maybe they still are. But as a general rule, no one has ever died as a result of those banks being too big. Trading losses pale in comparison to the degree to which the National Football League has been too big to tell the truth. Those lies have directly resulted in the death of NFL players, but also untold dangers to young kids playing football because their parents believe the league's denials about the risk of brain injury coming from concussion and repetitive head trauma. What's hard to deny is that the $10 billion business of the NFL has blood on its hand. We've all heard about the debate questioning the impact of repeated concussions and head traumas on NFL players. But the facts don't seem to be up for debate. This is not a case where the cover-up is worse than the crime. For the NFL, it seems, the cover-up is the crime. We're going to talk about this today with two guests whose work has done a lot to bring this issue into the public's attention. We're joined by Mark Fainaru-Wada and Steve Fainaru. Mark is an investigative reporter for ESPN with his colleague Lance Williams. He co-authored the bestseller Game of Shadows about Barry Bonds and the Balco steroid scandal. Steve Fainaru, also an investigative reporter for ESPN, covered the Iraq War for the Washington Post and received the 2008 Pulitzer Prize. Together, they're the authors of League of Denial, the NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. Mark Fainaru-Wada, Steve Fainaru, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great to have you here, Mark. Start with you. One of the things that is so remarkable about this story is that while in, in a lot of the public's mind it is a relatively recent story, five, six, seven years old, that this has been going on for 20-plus years. Yes, right. It's, it's really true. I mean, we, we track the story back really. I mean, the, the most pointed origins of it are back in, in 1994 in what becomes known in the league as the year of the concussion. Um, you have several high-profile players who receive concussions. Then you have some premature retirements because of concussions. Um, great players like Al Toon and Merrill Hodge. Um, and it's at that time that the, the issue is getting a lot of publicity in the media and coverage because of concerns about concussions. And the commissioner at the time, Paul Tagliabue, um, when he's asked about this at an event in New York, um, dismisses it really as a packed journalism issue. He blames the whole issue on on um, on really the media. Um, he's been being interviewed by the great journalist uh, David Halberstam, who has you know, recently covered the Vietnam War and 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 mocked sort of basically mocks Tagliabue. We talk about this in the book and and suggests that he feels like he's He's back in uh, in Vietnam, hearing the U.S. government uh, tout uh, tout the, the the numbers about um, deaths in Vietnam. So so and, and the crowd howls about it. We we sort of talk about this in the book, and then shortly thereafter, that Tagliabue forms a committee to study the issue of concussions, and it's made up largely of team doctors who are putting players back on the field despite concussions, and seemingly uh, don't believe it's a serious issue, and. The head of that committee is a gentleman named Elliot Pellman. He's a Jets team doctor, um, but he's a rheumatologist with no expertise in, in the brain. Um, and Pellman ultimately becomes Tagliabue's personal physician, even as leading he's leading a committee that uh, puts out paper after paper after paper um, denying the sort of seriousness of concussions in the NFL. And it wasn't just, Steve, just the issue of concussions. What really became clear is that this was really an issue of repetitive head trauma as much as concussions. Right. So so what was happening at this time was you had really competing narratives that were going on. You had this committee 
that was set up by Tagliabue, which was essentially ratifying what he himself already believed. This was not a major problem. Some of those papers state very directly that NFL players don't get brain damage, that they are essentially impervious to it, that they're almost superhuman, as the, the league seems to be suggesting. Well, at the same time, you have a growing number of neuroscientists, many of whom are affiliated with the league, who are issuing warnings in the form of uh, player surveys and their own studies. And then finally, autopsies of dead players um, that are showing quite clearly that the brains of these players um, are were show clear signs of neurodegenerative disease, with these scientists, which these scientists believe was caused by the head trauma that's endemic to the sport. Not just the, the concussions themselves, but the repeated head trauma over time that they believe is creating this sort of cascading effect inside their brains that leads to, the, to this, these devastating diseases, which manifest themselves in essentially madness, people going mad with anger management problems, memory problems, and to the point where they become almost unrecognizable to their families and their friends. Talk a little bit, Steve, about the autopsy that really starts the ball rolling, and that's the autopsy of, of Mike Webster. Sure. So Mike Webster, for, for those who aren't aware, was a, a legendary center for the Pittsburgh Steelers, a Hall of Famer. He played for 17 years. At one point, he was literally the strongest man in the NFL. Uh, after his retirement, uh, you know, he, he really uh, he basically went crazy and uh, ended up living in his truck, uh, suffered from incredible pain to the point that he couldn't sleep and would put himself to sleep with a stun gun, um, wrote thousands of letters to his family and friends that revealed the sort of incredible delusions that he was under, fantasized about killing NFL officials. Finally, he died at the age of 50 in 2002, his brain was examined at that point by a, a neuropathologist in Pittsburgh named Bennett Amalu, who suspected because of the report that, that Webster might be suffering from some kind of um, neurological disease. And in fact, um, he discovered that Webster had this disease known as CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which um, involves the buildup of this abnormal protein tau that, um, that effectively strangles brain cells and, and causes these clinical symptoms. And Webster becomes the first case, the first diagnosed case of an NFL player with this, with this disease. One of the things that the league tried to do, and this really goes, Mark, to the symptoms of this disease, is use the symptoms as, in fact, the cause and say that because these guys were exhibiting this strange behavior and engaging in drug use and, and showing all these anomalies, that, in fact, that's what caused the problem as opposed to that being the result of the trauma. Right. Well, I think what was interesting was, you know, the league began, the league's researchers appeared to be looking for anything other than the possibility that it was this repetitive trauma. They wanted to introduce the, po the prospect that it was steroids or that it was drugs. And there were certainly people who, in, researchers who embraced the possibility that there were other mitigating factors um, contributing to, to what was happening to these players possibly drug use, possibly um, genetic predisposition to it. Um, but the common theme from 
these independent researchers who were studying this was that the one uh, one recurring issue for all of these players who were being diagnosed with this was that they all had repetitive trauma. And then, of course, they looked at the sort of history of this issue, and to them it all made perfect sense, right? I mean, you had uh, for decades, back to the 1920s, and a well-established link between boxing um, and coming down with what's called pugilistic dementia or, or, uh, or punch-drunk syndrome. Um, which these doctors likened to what they were seeing in the brains of these football players. Um, so to them, um, you know, there's a point in the book where where Ann McKee, who's an uh, expert in this field and ends up seeing more NFL brains than anyone, um, is goes before um, goes to NFL headquarters and she presents to a team of of researchers, part of this MTBI committee that's been put together by Commissioner Tagliabue, um, and she. She lays out her findings very, you know, deliberately and specifically, and and is met with considerable resistance. And much of that resistance is rooted in them trying to find some other cause than football having done this to these players. She's not only met with resistance, but but really out and out disdain. That's absolutely right, and we see this in a few different cases. I mean, you know, uh, she she at one point, you know, she's being mocked by Ira Cass and the head of the committee according to several people who are there, being very dismissed, absolutely, there's an attitude of disdain. She, at one point, towards the end of it, um, sort of throws up her hands and says, you guys are delusional. Um, prior to that, you have Bennett Amalo, this Dr. Steve talked about earlier, who, uh, you know, the committee doesn't just ignore his findings, rather they attack it and call for his work to be um, retracted, which is, you know, again, akin to, um, you wouldn't do that unless you thought somebody had plagiarized or committed some sort of fraud. There's another point in the book where we detail a, a meeting in Chicago where all of the NFL brass, uh, uh, medical brass is there, and they invite several doctors, though they exclude Dr. Amalu. Um, commissioner Goodell is the new commissioner, and he's on hand for the first time to be made aware of this. And there's a doctor named Julian Bales who presents Bennett Amalu's work, and we detail this extensively in the book, and, and Bales who himself is a huge football fan and a former team neurosurgeon for the Steelers, um, is is mocked again by Casson. Um, and there's this, this attitude, he says, that they just didn't want to hear what he was saying. Talk a little bit about whether or not there was any change in attitude or what changed in terms of the league as the transition took place from Tagliabue to Goodell. Steve? Well, I, th- I think I think one of the things that was going on was that by then, despite you know these years of denials, the league was coming under fire from numerous sides uh, about you know sort of this issue and whether they were really dealing with the problem. You had former players out there who were raising alarms that you know that that this, these were major issues that needed to be addressed. You had um, you had the press suddenly getting involved. The New York Times was covering the story. ESPN was covering the story, and then finally you had Congress hold hearings in 2009, um, in which Goodell himself was hauled before the House Judiciary Committee, and was basically embarrassed um, because you know he was basically he was essentially saying that continuing to say, well, we're going to let the doctors figure this out. Well, at the same time, you had various forces from all over the country saying this is an issue, and reputable scientists are saying that there is this connection. 
And so the league at that point finally blew up that committee that Tagliabue had created and started anew, basically wiping out 15 years of work that they themselves now described as worthless and bringing in, frankly, many of the same critics who had been trying to warn them for years. And at that point, the league, in a, in a scene that we describe in, in the book, finally acknowledges to the New York Times that there is considerable evidence that, um, that there are long-term problems associated with this. Of course, as Mark points out, that's the first and the last time that the League has ever publicly acknowledged that connection. So I think, you know, in answer to your question, I, I think it's hard to know, really. You know, the League is certainly more um, public and proactive at this point. They're pouring tens of millions of dollars into research. But at the same time, you know, they spent the better part of two decades using their muscle um, to insinuate themselves into the science and deny that this was even a problem. So I think one has to ask, what, where are they going with this now? Have they really gotten religion around it and they're trying to get to the bottom of what the reality is around this issue? Or are they still trying to control it and protect their sport and, of course, their product? There still seems to be an effort to engage in the cover-up. Goodell's last interview about this, the one that he does with, with Bob Schieffer, is in direct contradiction to what the league spokesman, Greg Aiello, told Alan Schwartz of the New York Times. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I was saying this the other day, I, I think if I were a player in the NFL or the public, you you have to wonder, like, where are these guys coming from at this point? On the one hand... You know, they're, they're talking about making the game safer. They just settled a lawsuit for three quarters of a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, that money is earmarked to players who are so suffering from severe cognitive injuries. Um, you know, they've set up other, uh, benefit, uh, benefit systems to try to, to try to compensate players for, for these injuries. Well, at the same time, they're they're saying they're still going to leave it up to the medical experts to decide whether there's even a connection between football and brain damage. So, you know, I think it's you know I think the jury is still out with the, with the NFL. We know what they did. I think Mark and I amassed uh, you know a, a, quite a large amount of information about the league's efforts to bury this problem for a long time. You know, where we're going from here, I think, is a real open question at this point. Mark, is the problem getting, even though the league makes all these pronouncements about increasing safety, the violence of the game, the speed of the game, the, the size of the players, certainly gives every indication that potentially the problem could get worse? Well, I think Steve and I have talked about this a lot, that you know, this idea of somehow making the game safer, um, particularly at the NFL level, seems to be... Um, you know, it's a hard sell in many ways, right? And I and I don't think either of us actually are necessarily in support of it uh, in the way it's being attacked. I mean, we love the NFL, both of us do. Steve's a season ticket holder of the 49ers. You know, we both love the sport. And one of the reasons we love it, and I think most people love it, is because it's brutal and it's violent. And, and it's football. And so I don't know that you can really take that out of the game. And, you know, yes, you can legislate against head-to-head hits, um, and, you know, certainly they've moved the, the kickoffs up, so that's, you know, uh, cut down on the number of returns, um, and they've limited practice time hitting. But in terms of actually the game itself, 
I'm not sure that there are really changes you can make or, frankly, that you want to make. Um, and as you know, you know, the, the players are bigger, stronger, faster. Um, and and if, if indeed the folks at Boston University are right and the issue is not the sort of giant blows that we see, um, that we all notice where a, a defensive back blows up a wide receiver, but rather just the repetitive nature of, ga- of the game, the pounding that happens particularly at the line of scrimmage on, at, at every game on every down, um, then I, I'm not sure there is a way to legislate that out. I think the, the, the other issue Steve and I folk talk about is, you know, the NFL is one thing. The question at the lower levels is an entirely different one. Um, around high schools and and uh, and Pop Warner, and in fact, we're seeing and you, and you talk about this, seeing some cases of this kind of injury, this kind of damage, the CTE show up in in Pop Warner in high school and certainly in college. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that has been most alarming, particularly to the people at Boston University who have really been they've examined the most brains. You know, they've seen they've seen cases show up in in high school players and in college players that they believe simply should not be occurring. You know, these are these are the beginnings of, they say, of neurodegenerative disease that, you know, you would associate with somebody much, much older. And that, to them, is alarming. At the same time, you know, these are scattered cases. And so I think there is a lot of, um, you know, I think on the part of some neuroscientists, there's some skepticism about what this really means. You know, I... I, I really can't emphasize this enough. You know, Mark and I, we're not coming at this as, as advocates except for more and better information and transparency. Um, we're not out here telling parents that they shouldn't let their kids play football, and we're certainly not advocating for, you know, for change in the NFL except for in the comportment of the league, which, you know, did a major disservice to its players and its fans by by burying this information for so long. Um, and I think that ultimately it's the science that's going to lead, that's going to lead us to wherever it is that we're, we're going. The, the fact that, that this disease now is being found, seemingly being found in teenagers and, um, and very young men, um, it would have to give you pause. I mean, you know, it sort of speaks for itself. But I think we're I think we're a long way from knowing exactly what the prevalence of this disease is, um, how many people get it, um, and uh, you know, and, and what the risk, what the real risk is. You know, we know now that playing NFL football can give you this disease and has in the brains of 52 people who played in the league. What we don't know ultimately is. Um, what is the quantifiable measurement that will allow us to assess risk? What responsibility, Mark, do the players have in all of this, particularly now that we know at least what we know as of this point? Well, I think now, you know, that that question, you know, for the players, certainly it's hard for, I think, any current player um, or somebody coming into the league now to argue that they don't know. You know, certainly you know, humbly, if they read the book or if they've followed the issues at all, they're going to they're gonna have a, a much clearer understanding now that this is a possibility for them. But I'm always very put off by the argument. We see it a lot from people who, you know, uh, attack these older players or the players who are suing the league, suggesting that they all, they all knew what they were getting into. They were all making a lot of money, and they knew that they, you know, might have these kinds of issues. And, in fact, that's, that's just not true. Um, 
you know, first of all, a lot of these older players did not make a lot of money. And even now, currently, you've got certainly players making, you know, considerable amounts of money, but in many cases only playing the league three to four years. Um, but, but the issue is, you know, when you talk to these players, yes, they knew that uh, their arms, their shoulders might be shredded, their knees, their hips, they might have replacements. Their bodies just might break down on them. Um, but what they will tell you is they had no idea that they might end up with brain damage from playing football. You know, that's a huge distinction. There's a, a part in the book we talk about where we detail the story of Merrill Hodge, who's now an a analyst at ESPN, the former Steelers uh, running back. And, and Hodge ends up suing the league or suing the Chicago Bears um, for some mistreatment of, of his concussions. And, and he's on the stand during that trial. It's really one of the first, maybe the first case that actually goes to trial about this issue um, in which uh, he's suing the Bears, but technically, but really, in essence, the league is being put on trial over this issue for the first time. Um, and, and Hodge says that very thing. He's like, look, you know, I, I wasn't told, I didn't know that my brain might be in play. So I really think it's a very different dynamic. Talk a little bit about the wives of some of the players that have been deceased and how their activism has played a role in this. Well, I think it's been a I think it's been a major a major thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have one of the things that I think is so um, powerful about this about this story is that you're not only seeing the devastation that this disease causes to people who we grow up watching and loving and feeling like they're probably indestructible. You know, people like Mike Webster and Junior Seau and Dave Dorson um, and so many others. You know, what we, what we really found, and I think what was so poignant to us, was the incredible devastation that occurs within the families of these people, wives and kids who are trying to understand why the people they love are suddenly so different, completely unrecognizable in many ways to the people that they've been living with. It's just, you know, the transformation is just incredible and and, and incredibly sad. The wives, uh, you know, people, um, you know, people like uh, Eleanor Perfetto, uh, Ralph Wenzel's uh, wife, came to the league basically asking them, you know, and Sylvia Mackey, John Mackey's wife, went to the league raising alarms and saying, like, this is what I'm living with now. When you read Sylvia Mackey's letter to Paul Tagliabue trying to describe how she's, how she's trying to take care of her husband, you know, the, the, the former Colts great, the former president of the Players Union, a pillar of the, of the league and one of the players who built the league into what it's now become, you know, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. And, um, and I think that that had a real impact in moving the league along. Now, the, the wives and the kids, you know, ended up just being another force trying to move this, you know, this, this monolithic force, uh, you know, to change. Uh, and it took a while, you know, so you see in the film and in the book, you know, some resentment among these people about the NFL's seeming indifference to their, to their problems. You know, there's, there's just a, there's a feeling like, why don't they get it? And I think that's a, you know, I think that's one of the takeaways of the whole story is like, why, why didn't the NFL get it for so long? 
and even as recently as 2007, they had put out this pamphlet talking about how safe football was for your brain, Mark. Right. I mean, you know, I'm always struck. Yeah, so in 2007, they, they uh, after they hold a summit, this summit in Chicago that I discussed, in right. which the league is really, Commissioner Goodell has really put on notice for the first time. You have, you have, for what are what we describe in the book as the dissenters, they become known as the dissenters, and they they present to all these team doctors and Commissioner Goodell about issues that the league is facing around concussions, including this point in which Julian Bales, the neurosurgeon of the, the former Steelers team doctor, stands up and shows slides of brain damaged players um, that they believe are atta- are connected to football. Um, and after that meeting, the league puts out this pamphlet that basically the cover of it is what is a concussion. And, and it suggests that, um, you know, there is no evidence effectively um, to demonstrate that uh, if you get one or more concussions, um, that that has any lasting effects if the, if the injuries are treated properly. And, I, I, you know, I think to many people that reflected, you know, after hearing what the league heard at that Chicago meeting to then sort of follow that up, despite the emerging science and the reports, um, I think struck a lot of people. And I, I'm more struck, actually, that in 2009, you know, even in 2009, 15 years after the so-called crisis has started and the league has been producing paper after paper, and you now have, you know, dozen, you know, many, many cases of, of CTE diagnosed in, in NFL players that Ann McKee could, could go to NFL headquarters and be dismissed in, uh, in a way that she was. You know, just as recently as 2009. And at 2009 at the Super Bowl, you have Chris Nowinski and, and Lisa McHale there and, and others presenting, and really that had very little effort to move the needle as well. Well, it's interesting because I think one of the things that's so striking about the press conference they hold in Tampa is how few people actually show up. You know, it, the press conference is held on the same day as the Super Bowl media day, which attracts something like 5,000 reporters from all over the world. And so um, Nowinski and Lisa McHale and Ann McKee hold a press conference in a, in, a, in a conference room at a nearby hotel to tell the world that this is a major problem, it's a crisis, and that anybody who doesn't believe it is in denial. And of course, that anybody is the, is the National Football League. And it's greeted with, you know, very little attention. And, you know, that that's not that long ago. I mean, we're talking about four years ago. And I think it, you know, it's interesting because I do think it speaks to sort of how far we've come in terms of awareness in the last, just in the last four years. But I think it also, you know, some people have, uh, some people have suggested that our, that our book should have been called like Nation of Denial or Culture of Denial. <laughs> and I do think there's a certain, you know, I do think there's a certain complicity that we all share. Like, not, who wants to believe that football causes brain damage? You know, even the people who were discovering it didn't want to believe it um, until they were confronted with what they thought was indisputable evidence that it was that it was true. These are people who love football, and in many cases are still working in football. Um, and so, uh, you know, to me, that that's one of the most powerful things about that press conference. And I think it's true in sports generally. When Mark exposed that Barry Bonds, you know, was injecting himself with, you know, with, with steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs to break the home run record, the hallowed home run record, you know, who wanted to believe that? When, when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were, were chasing it, you know, and the nation was riveted, 
and you know people were raising questions about whether this was real you know who wants to believe it you know we 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 like our sports pristine and unfettered by you know in many cases reality and uh you know but that doesn't make it any less real and particularly in a situation like this where you know it's a matter of you know such devastation such major consequences you know these are human beings and i think we forget that um you know, it, 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 I think it gives you pause a little bit. Is this different, Mark, though, in, in terms of the violence itself, the, the underlying cause here, being part of what the league was selling? Certainly in baseball, they weren't selling the steroid use. But here we have even helmets smashing together as part of the, the NFL logo. Talk a little about that. Well, I think there's no question. There's a, there's a difference, Justin, that this is the... You know, this is the inherent part of the game. The steroids issue is, you know, a choice by some players to make that choice. And whether the league flat out endorsed it or or tacitly accepted it, um, it still had a different component because you're not, you know, you're not talking about just the sort of nature of the sport entirely. Um, but but there's a real, you know, I, I think one of the things we lay out in the book that you're talking about right now is the way the league shaped uh, its message towards fans and. It's really an interesting evolution in many ways. They they go from from being a league that entirely markets the violence. I mean, they they embrace it in a huge way that many of us love. Everything from um, the opening of of you know the, the the Monday Night Football and the other sort of TV shows that 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 um, that promote football and, and the league being totally accepting of that and, and and encouraging it to NFL films, the industry of you know of the league, the arm of the sort of you know. Um, the arm of, of, of putting out there exactly the, the league's um, sort of mantra of violence, and so you would you would see these these tapes or v- VCR t- tapes of uh, you know called Crash Course or NFL's Greatest Hits, um, you know clearly you know discussing the absolute violence of, of football. You know now if you look at the shift that's happening around the league, they're they're no longer marketing that violence. Um, we all know it's there and we all love it. But right now they're trying to market the sport as safer. They're trying to suggest that they've made a safer sport, um, and they're marketing the idea even to one of the things we talk about in the book is they're marketing to mommy bloggers, um, bringing in mothers from around the country to NFL headquarters and, and having them sit through symposiums in which there's a discussion about the, the, the issue of concussions and how the NFL is working extremely hard to make the game as safe as possible. Um, and, uh, and you know, people should not be fearful for allowing their kids to play. Do you think that Goodell gets it at this point, Steve? I, I just don't know the answer to that question, frankly. You know, when I hear him talk about the issue, he's still saying the same things that he said before Congress in, in, in 2009. At the same time, you know, we have, the, you know, the league never would agree to, to sit down with us. You know, we requested interviews with him, I don't know how many times. But... Um, you know, people, we, we've obviously talked to a lot of people who have interacted with him, and many of them believe that his heart is in the right place, and he really does want this to be his legacy, and sort of uh, getting, you know, even if it wasn't when he came, when he took over, that he now realizes that his legacy is obviously going to be shaped by by this issue, and he wants to, to get a handle on it. I think the question is, what, what does that mean, really? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that he was able to control it and um, and protect the, the shield, protect the sport, um, you know, as he describes it, or are we really going to find out, 
how big of a problem is this? You know, as I, as I said earlier, the, the league's pouring millions of dollars into this into this research now, you know, trying to, in many ways, control the science and, uh, you know, become a force in how the scientific community ultimately resolves what's going on with this. Um, and I think time will tell. You know, there are people now working for the league who were extremely critical of the league for years and years and years. But um, one of the things that I think Mark and I noticed when we were when we were doing the research is that some of the people who were very critical of the league um, and were raising this as a major problem, once they come under the big tent, as sometimes described, you know, they 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 become more muted and they seem to be almost arguing with themselves over whether this is a problem. That's a really interesting phenomenon, and, you know, it's as much psychology as it is anything else. But I think in answer to your question, we're just going to have to see. Um, you know, the, I really do think, you know, the, 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 the NFL was dragged kicking and screaming by the scientists to the point where we are now, where it's really, it's an issue that's obviously impossible to ignore and in many ways impossible to, to deny. Um, and I think the same is going to be true now. We're going to find out at some point, you know, really how big is the risk of playing football to your brain. We now know that there's some risk for sure and that the consequences are potentially devastating, but we don't know entirely, you know, how big that risk is, how many people get it, you know, whether your kids can get it and, you know, sort of how how much risk they're, you know, they're incurring. Uh, and how Goodell responds to those discoveries, I think, will tell will 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 be the answer to your question. And and finally, Mark, there seems to be an effort in some quarters, and it's hard to know where this really comes from, but to almost politicize this issue. There was a story a week or so ago, almost putting it in a political context that you know the government should get out of the way. That in fact, you know, stop trying to water down football, and it's becoming a polarized political issue. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I, I've never, you know, I remember being struck as the steroids issue was playing out um, that it became such a such a, a red and blue issue that um, you know when you when you saw the congressional hearings play out, um, you had you know Republicans taking a very clear position. Um, on one side of this as, as players were testifying and the Democrats taking another, you know, over an issue that seemed to be fairly clear, right? I mean, guys are using steroids in baseball, and baseball seemingly was allowing it to happen for years, so let's deal with that. Um, but in the same way, you know, there's some, ele- there's some element of that even so. When Congress, you know, called football to, to, to the Hill back in 2009, you saw those elements there. And I, I just think, you know, I think in large part because – you know, football is so beloved for all of us. Um, it is a very polarizing thing. I mean, this is, you know, Julian Bale says it very eloquently, both in interviews with us for the book and for the film, you know, this is an issue he really didn't want to believe. Nobody wanted to believe this, right? I mean, the idea that football, our, our, our national pastime, whatever baseball wants to say, this is our national pastime now, and it's the most popular sport in America. The idea that it might be causing brain damage in significant numbers of players you know, it's a hugely problematic thing for anybody to digest, as Steve was saying earlier. And so I think inevitably that's going to be a polarizing message and you're going to end up, you know, sort of seeing a political divide over it. Um, so, I, I, you know, 
I'm no longer surprised that anything <laughs> ends up being sort of Republican and Democrat split. Mark Fainaru Wada, Steve Fainaru. The book is League of Denial, The NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. Mark, Steve, I thank you both for spending time with us today. Wow, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.